Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee, that you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when he saw them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always till the end of the age. The word of the Lord. Good morning. You know, just like many of you, <clears throat> I was born and raised in Philadelphia, right? This is my home. This is my city. I, I tell my wife all the time, I would not be anywhere else. I don't want to live anywhere else. This is where I call home. I want to die. I want to be buried somewhere in this vicinity. Not here, necessarily, <laughs> but somewhere in this city. This is my home. I love Philadelphia. Now, I must admit, though, that maybe some of the sentiment that I'm feeling, some of the, the emotion that I have about this city, uh, it's sort of the result of some brainwashing. Because uh, uh, there are times when I go to other cities, like I'll go to, like, Chicago, or I'll go to Boston, and I'll look around, and I secretly, and I want to stress the word secretly, like, let's keep it here, uh, I secretly think to myself, why in the world do I live in Philadelphia? Like, because uh, you see these places, and they're prettier, uh, they're friendlier, uh, they're more established and more developed than we are, uh, and then we have Philadelphia, right? Uh, so what do I do? I, I kind of uh, close my eyes and sort of pretend like I don't see it. I deny it. I keep telling myself, no, 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 this is just all made up. It's made up. Don't, think, don't believe it. So I go back to my hotel. I pack up my stuff. I, I return back home. I go back to... Philly, and I keep telling myself, you live in the greatest city in the world. You live in the greatest city in the world. And it's worked. For the last 32 years, <laughs> I have convinced myself that I live in the greatest city in the world. But as Philadelphians, if we could be honest with each other for a moment, 
there are times, as much as we love this city, there are times for sure where it is really hard for us to love Philadelphia. Because all we need to do is turn on Action News at 5 o'clock and watch for a half an hour to be reminded of how much there is to hate about this city. Just in this last week, okay, in the last seven days, I want you to hear some of the stories that were told uh, in the news uh, over this past week. This past week, a 19-year-old man was shot to death during a home invasion, invasion in Northeast Philadelphia. 11-year-old boy was playing basketball with his friends and was shot to death in West Philadelphia. 11-year-old girl was playing at home with her sister, who was two years old, and shot her to death in Philadelphia. A group of men were arrested this week uh, during a prostitution sting in the Kensington part of Philadelphia. Another group of men in Philadelphia were arrested this week for possessing and distributing child pornography. People all over the world were receiving child pornography through the efforts of these men who lived in Philadelphia. A 77-year-old man was robbed and beaten with a wine bottle in the Hunting Park section of Philadelphia. All of this, this is not 10 years of history, this is in the last seven days here in Philadelphia. As much as I love this city, as much as this is my home, I must admit there's a lot that I hate about this city. The city is a mess. The city is broken. This city needs something to change. Because all we need to do is watch the news for 30 minutes and be reminded of the fact that we really do live in a broken city. You know, and so as, as Christians, sometimes uh, we're kind of expected to come and bring a message of hope in hopeless situations, right? But if I were to ask you this morning, when you look into your city, when you consider all that's going on in the city, what's the message of hope that you bring in to the city that you live in? Like, for example, if you're traveling to work one day or you're uh, at, you know, at home and talking to your neighbor one day and they say to you, listen, uh, you're a Christian, right? You've heard all the things that are going on in the city in the last seven days, all the different things that we've seen and heard. What's the, what's the message of hope that you bring as a Christian to what's going on in this place? How would you respond? Like, what would you say? I, I think some of us will say something like, you know what, our hope is in heaven. Our hope's in heaven because our hope is that one day God's going to take us from this place. He's going to take us from all that's going on in here. He's going to take us to a place where there is no more murder and there is no perversion and there is no more tears and death that we experience. This will all come to an end one day. And to that we will say, amen. Amen. We agree with that. That is right hope. That is good hope. That is glorious hope. That's hope that we bank our lives on. There will absolutely come a day where God will completely set things right, where there will be no more tears or death or dying or pain or destruction. That is, without a, without a doubt, hope for the Christian. And we really do long for that day. But if we were to sort of stop and consider for a moment what it is that we're communicating to our friend. Sometimes what we are saying to them feels more like an evacuation plan 
than it does a real solution to the mess that we're seeing here on earth, right? It's sort of like those signs that you see when you go to your hotel room, right? You close the door and there's a, there's a poster on the door that tells you, listen, if this building is burning down or if it's falling apart, this is how you get out. Listen, when a building is burning down or is falling apart, getting out is a great idea, right? It's abs- that's good news. That's not bad news. But what it doesn't tell us is what are we going to do with this burning building, right? We need to consider what is going on with this burning building. What are we going to do about this burning building? How are we going to be able to deal with that? Well, it's possible that for some of us, the main hope that we have as Christians in the midst of this messed up, burning up world is that one day God is going to get us out. But here's the thing, right? While that is absolutely good hope, and right hope, it sort of does feel like incomplete hope as well. Because the hope that we find in Jesus isn't simply that we just need to sit tight because there's a better day coming, because that doesn't seem to address the fire that's going on in our lives today, right? It's like telling someone who's going through a a, a rough time in marriage and looking him in the face and saying, listen, buddy, I'm sorry, but guess what? You're going to die one day, and this is all just going to be over. So perk up, <laughs> right? Or, or it's, look, it's like looking at someone who just recently lost their, lost their job and they're going through financial difficulty and hardship and looking at them and saying, listen, don't worry about it, dude. One day you're going to get to heaven and you won't be poor anymore. <laughs> that doesn't seem right, right? Because the hope is that the, the hope that we find is in, in Jesus isn't just a reality for the future, It's also a remedy for the brokenness that we see right now, right here, right? You see, for the past several weeks now, we've been considering this series on the resurrection of Jesus. And what I want to propose to you this morning is that Jesus' death and resurrection actually provides for us the fullness of hope that we have as Christians. Hope for the future, indeed, right? Without a doubt, without belittling that hope for the future, absolutely, but as well as hope for today. Because Jesus died and resurrected, he not only gives us hope for the world to come, he also gives us great hope for the world that we live in today, for the brokenness that we see in our city and in in our own lives as well. And so what we want to do this morning is to consider how is that true? How does Jesus' resurrection affect my life or what's going on in the city? So we'll do that together. But before that, let's pray. Ask the Lord for help in being able to see that. Our Lord, we are grateful this morning that we gather in your presence. And we're grateful this morning that we gather before your word. This is your word that you have given to us. You are the one who has inspired this word through men. You are the one that is able to open up our ears so that we can understand this word. Apart from you, this is just literally words. We cannot understand them. Spiritual things cannot be understood by humans. So we need your spirit to be able to give us insight that we don't have for ourselves. We need your spirit to stir in our heart affections that we cannot manufacture for ourselves. We need your spirit to convict us so that we know and understand and are transformed by truth because we cannot transform ourselves. And so I pray this morning, God, that you would do all of that work the the preaching, the listening, the transforming, you would do all of that because you have promised that you will do all of that 
So we pray that you would fulfill your word. We trust in your promises. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And so the passage we're going to be considering this morning is Matthew chapter 28. Uh, and it's, we're going to specifically be looking at uh, verses 18 to 20. Uh, Jay read for us this morning the entirety of the, the chapter. I'm going to be focusing in on verses 18 to 20. So let's hear that once more. This is what it says, starting at verse 18. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, if you grew up in a church context or, you know, you kind of are familiar with the Bible, this is probably a, a portion of Scripture that you're fairly familiar with, right? Sometimes we call it as the, the Great Commission. Now, since we're considering uh, this question of how do we bring hope into a place that seems so hopeless, this is probably a good passage for us to consider. Because when most Christians think about mission, it is this idea of bringing hope to an area right? Bringing hope to an area that is in need of hope. Because that's absolutely right. Because when we do things like make disciples or, or baptize them or teach them the things that Jesus has taught us, we indeed are able to bring hope into a hopeless area. But here's the thing, right? I don't know about you, but when I consider this section, this 18 to 20, these verses, uh, when I consider this great commission, most of the time, I kind of just skip over verse 18, right? Because I obviously know that it's there. I've read it before. uh, But I'm not really sure how it fits into the rest of the passage or to the rest of this little chunk right here. Because verses 19 and 20, they seem fairly clear to me, like what the purpose is. 19 and 20 is telling me about what mission looks like, what the nature of mission looks like, how it's supposed to be fulfilled. But I'm not really sure what 18 is doing. And so at best, what I do is I read that and I say, Okay, so Jesus is basically saying, I'm Jesus, I'm powerful, and this is what I want you to do. And that's true, right? Uh, None of that, what I just said right now, is actually false. It's true, but I would say that probably something more than that is being said in verse 18. And so what we want to do is consider what is verse 18 telling us, and what does it have to do with mission? But before we do that, we want to consider just a moment about the context of this of this passage. What, what, what are we picking up at? What has been going on? So in chapter 27, just a chapter before this, we're actually hearing a story that happens three days ago or a few days ago, right? Just three days earlier, the disciples are watching Jesus being nailed to a cross and then afterwards being put into a tomb. Now you got to remember, right? This is their Jesus, This is the Jesus that they expected to be the Messiah, the one that is going to rescue them from the oppression that they're going through and and lead them to justice and peace. This is the one who would uh, do all of the things that they were expecting and they were hoping that he would do. This is the one that many of them banked their entire lives on. Remember, many of these men who followed him uh, dropped everything. They gave up their occupations. They gave up so much and followed him And this is the same Jesus that's now lying in a tomb, lifeless, as a result of execution from the Romans. All of a sudden, right, after years of being able to live life with him and and follow him around and having great expectations for him, 
It's like everything sort of just comes to a stop. Their Messiah was now lying dead in a grave. And if they were to be honest, it's sort of hard for them to make sense of the whole thing, right? And so what happens? They probably just sit around for a little bit. They're probably thinking through, hey, what was all of that, right? We gave up everything for this, for him. He said all sorts of things. It says also that in the scripture, they were in a room together. They're kind of hiding out together because they're not sure what, what this means for them. Will people attack them? Because they've, they've been seen walking around with this Jesus. They're scared. They're confused. All sorts of things are happening. So the first day passes. The second day passes. And it says that the third day, a group of women, a group of women decide that they're going to go and visit this Jesus, this dead Jesus, lying in a grave Jesus, at the tomb. And so they go, okay? So they walk over to the tomb, they visit the tomb, and when they do so, it says that they encounter an angel, and this is what the angel says. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Could you imagine the shock of hearing that? Again, first of all, just the shock of seeing an angel, Right? I think sometimes when we, uh, maybe if you read the Bible, you kind of think that angels are just popping up all over the place and people are just kind of, like it's a normal uh, occurrence. You just get used to seeing angels walking around. When you see an angel, that's, that's a shocking thing when you see an angel, right? But here's the thing. It's not even just the fact that she, they saw this angel. Even more than that, it's what the angel said. The angel said, I know why you're here. You're here to see the crucified Jesus. Well, guess what? He's not here anymore. He has risen, he has risen as he has said. And the women are probably like, what is this angel talking about? What is she saying? Let me try to put this into uh, Philadelphia terms for you, right? Let me try to put it into a way that, that we, we folk can understand what this is saying. It's sort of like uh, you're going to an Eagles game, okay? So you're going to uh, game 16, they're playing uh, the Dallas Cowboys, it's the last game of the season. You're going over to the link, uh, and this game matters because this game will determine whether your season comes to an end or you keep going on to the playoffs, right? So you're pumped. You get uh, standing room tickets because that's all you can afford, and so you're, you're there, and you're standing there watching this game going on. First quarter happens, no score, no sweat. We're good. We're just, we're just getting them lined up. Second quarter, no score. Keeps going, keeps going. You're in the fourth quarter right now, and they are getting blown out by the cowgirls, right? It's 56 to nothing. There's four minutes left in the fourth quarter, and so you're looking at your watch, you're looking at this field, and you're just feeling like, I, I can't watch this game anymore. It's done. I mean, what, why are we even here? I'm leaving, right? And so you, you pack up your buddies, and, and you head out of the link. Maybe you jump on a train, or you get in your car, and you're driving back. You're, you don't want to listen to the radio. You don't want to talk about it. You've been there before, right? Where you don't even want to talk about it. Uh, you just want to sit and just consider what you just saw. It's done. The season's over. And so you get back home, and yet you're a Philadelphian, right? So you like to be able to hear people complaining. So you think, I want to <laughs> hear what the announcers are saying. And so you get home, and you turn on Comcast Sportsnet, and you want to hear... You know, what are these commentators saying? How are they going to explain what just happened? And you turn on the television, and the craziest thing, 
it ends up that they won. And you're like, that's unbelievable. Wait, that's the last thing in the world that you would have expected. I mean, they were, that game was done. It was over. They were down and out. How in the world did these people come back and win this game? And for the women that were there at the tomb that morning, that was sort of what it was like to hear about a resurrected Jesus. It was unbelievable for them. It was the last thing that they would have expected. They said Jesus was down and out. There was no coming back. Resurrection wasn't something they were expecting or hoping for. They were thinking he's in the grave and he's done. And so the angel says to them, listen, Jesus is head over to Galilee. Uh, and so go round up the disciples and go. Go out there and you'll find him, right? Go and find him and meet up with him and you can talk to him. And so the women do just that, right? And can you imagine what that moment was like when these women are running back to the disciples and the, the, the fear, the confusion, the excitement, all of that stuff that they have coming into this room telling them, listen, we went to the tomb and he's not there. In fact, we saw this angel and she said to me uh, that he's risen, just like he said, uh, and, and he's headed to Galilee. We got to go, Right? I mean, this is the same one that you had given your life to, the one that you believe to be your Messiah, the one just a few hours earlier, just a few moments earlier, you believed was lying in the grave, dead, and now these women are saying, he's alive. So they get up, and they go, they run over to Galilee, and they say they meet up on this mountain. And I picture that that, that moment of being reunited was a bit crazy, right? You imagine that when they, they're getting reunited there is probably all sorts of things going on. I imagine that some of those people are probably just crying their eyes out, right? I mean, they're probably screaming on the top of their lungs because they're seeing the resurrected Jesus and they can't believe what their eyes are seeing. And they're, they're not saying anything. They're just bawling. Their eyes are filled with tears and it's running down their face because they can't believe what they're seeing. I imagine there are other people that probably ran up to Jesus and started hugging him because in, in one sense, they just want to make sure that this is actually real. Again, he's not supposed to be alive. He's come back to life again. He's standing there resurrected. So they're probably hugging him and, and feeling his face and, and saying, is this real? Is this really happening? I'm sure that there are others probably that didn't want to go anywhere near him. Again, it's not every day that somebody comes back to life. There's probably fear. You're seeing him there, and you're probably saying, I'm going to stand right here. I'm going to just watch what's going on because I don't know what to believe. The scripture says that there are some of those that came and started worshiping him. I imagine that there were people who dropped to their knees and started prostrating before him because to them, they said, this is Jesus. He needs to be worshiped, and so they started worshiping. The text also says that there were some people who were standing off on the side in disbelief, right? Again, they're seeing what they're seeing. They've heard what they've heard, but they're not really sure what's going on. This isn't easy to swallow. This isn't something that they were expecting for. I imagine that that scene was a crazy scene. Well, it says that, you know, Jesus is seeing them, and I imagine when things started to calm down a little bit, that Jesus begins to talk. Remember, this is the first time that he's seeing his disciples, the group together, and he's talking to them, and this is what he says. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, what was Jesus talking about? What was he referring to? Now, if you're a disciple, 
and you're familiar with the Old Testament, uh, maybe as he says this, uh, maybe your mind is starting to work a little bit because you, it sounds uh, awfully familiar to you. You hear it and you say, that, I, I feel like I've heard something like that before. And, and your, your memory is being jogged. And as, do, as you start thinking through these things, you remember, you know what? There was this prophet Daniel. This is prophet Daniel who said something like this before. What was it that he said? Well, this is what he said. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, Daniel the prophet says this. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that's another title for God, and was presented before him. And to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You see, this passage, this text that Daniel is talking, this is written about 600 years before Jesus ever enters into the scene. And what we're seeing here is Daniel is prophesying about this new rule that's going to be established here on earth. He calls it the rule of the Son of Man. That's the title, right? A new rule where the king doesn't just rule an empire or a piece of land or a country. His rule is universal. A new rule where the king doesn't just rule for a period of time. His rule is forever. A new ruler established by God. A a king who would make all things right. This is what Daniel is talking about. And if you're a Jew and you're thinking back to this promise that, that Daniel made... That would be amazing news for you. It would be good news for you. You see, because the Jews were desperate. The Jews were desperate. They were living under oppression for all sorts of years. Babylon and, and, and Persia and right now living under Roman rule. I and mean, they've even suffered under their own king, Herod. Herod was not desiring what was best for the Jews. He did what he wanted. And so in their hearts, they're longing for a king, for a ruler, a Messiah to come and to make all things right. For this true king, for the son of man to come and to rule over the entire world. Their hearts longed for that. And so as they're standing there listening to Jesus, they're beginning to think to themselves, what I'm hearing this Jesus saying about himself sounds an awful lot like what Daniel said about the son of man. And so their minds are racing, right? They're trying to make sense of all this, thing, all that they are seeing and they're hearing. And that's when I imagine that Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, remembers something that just happened a few days ago. Look with me at Matthew chapter 26, starting at verse 57. I'm going to jump around a little bit. This is what it says. It says, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest. Right? This is right about when uh, Jesus has been arrested and he's about to be uh, uh, put on trial and, and questioned and ultimately crucified. And it says that they brought him to Caiaphas, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, one of his disciples. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So Jesus said to him, 
You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And check this out. It says that the high priest tore his robes and he said, he has uttered blasphemy. I'm sure it wasn't as as calm and as collected as I just said it. I'm sure he was screaming on the top of his lungs. He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. And so he looks out into the crowd and he says, what is your judgment? And they scream out. They answer him. He says, they say, he deserves death. Why is Caiaphas so outraged by what Jesus said? Because he knows exactly what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that he is the son of man. He is the son of man, the one that Daniel had prophesied over 600 years ago. You're looking at him. He was claiming to be the ruler of the entire world, the king who would come to reign forever. And so what that means is that for Caiaphas, Jesus is his ruler. He submits to to Jesus, not the other way around. And so what does Caiaphas do? He goes nuts, right? He tears open his robe. He's overwhelmed by what he's hearing, and he screams out blasphemy, and he wants Jesus to be put to death. Well, guess what happens? Three days later, this same Jesus, who they put to death for blasphemy, is standing now resurrected before the disciples, declaring once again that he has been given all authority over heaven and earth. All of it is his. He's saying, listen, I am indeed the son of man, and I have come to establish my kingdom here on earth. And it's like the the disciples are standing there. They can't deny it, right? When somebody comes back to life, a rule of thumb, when somebody comes back to life, you listen to what they say, (laughs) right? They can't deny it. The king we have been waiting for is here. The king of heaven and earth is here, and he's standing right before my face. Now, I imagine that the excitement that the disciples felt was also probably mixed with some confusion, right? Because here's the thing. If, if Jesus really is the king, where is his kingdom? I mean, for crying out loud, his kingdom was a tomb for the last three days, right? He was in a grave That's not much of a kingdom. Where is his palace? Where is his land? Where is any semblance of a kingdom if this is really a king? And that's when you have to sort of zoom out and and consider more than just the moment that we're considering right now and consider the entirety of the life and ministry of Jesus. Because when we do, we begin to realize that Jesus has been doing the work of establishing the kingdom ever since he arrived on the scene. Do you know what the first thing that Jesus preached Do you know what the first sermon was that he preached when he saw his disciples? In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, you can hear it. He begins his ministry by saying, repent, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, listen, I don't know what you think when you hear that. When you imagine the term kingdom of heaven, what you think of. Because when I think of kingdom of heaven, I imagine this place that's sort of far off, that's sort of out there, that, that... where God is, and, and one day he'll take me to. But Jesus uses this nine-word sermon, right? This nine-word sermon to teach us something about the truth of his kingdom. 
And so what does Jesus say? He starts off by saying, repent. The word repent literally means a change of mind, to consider something differently, right? So he's saying, listen, you need to repent. Why? Because you need to consider something different about this kingdom, something different than maybe what you believe about this kingdom. You need to see this kingdom differently. You need to realize that through Jesus, through me, God's rule and reign is breaking into this world. Through him, God's rule and reign is breaking into this world. You see, unlike I think about this kingdom, and maybe you think about this kingdom, the kingdom isn't someplace out there that we'll get to one day when we die. God's kingdom is, is being brought and established here on earth. That's what Jesus, that was his first sermon. He was saying, it's coming, it's here, it's at hand. It's before you. It's in your face. Jesus' rule and reign is not a day to come. It's here right now. It's before you. You see, that's why it's so right for Jesus to be called Emmanuel, right? When they said he should be called Emmanuel, God with us, it's because God is with us. When Jesus came, he came to establish his rule, his kingdom here on earth. God is indeed with us. And do you know what Jesus spent the entirety of his ministry on earth doing? Through every word, through every action, Jesus was allowing us to audibly hear and to visibly see what God's kingdom is really like. That's what he's doing. So, for example, right, when Jesus feeds 5,000 people, do you know why he feeds 5,000 people? Because in the kingdom, there is no hunger. There is no want. There is no poverty. And so when he feeds 5,000 people, he's not just considering, hey, what do we give these people to eat? He's saying, I'm going to show them what the kingdom of heaven is like. I'm going to establish the kingdom here on earth. They're going to get a taste of the kingdom when I feed their bellies. That's what he's doing. Or why did Jesus heal all sorts of people? All sorts of people came to be healed by Jesus, to be healed of their blindness and, 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 and leprosy and all sorts of things. Why did he do that? Why did he heal them? Because in the kingdom, there's no disease. There's no death. Our bodies don't break down. We'll have glorious bodies. And so when he's healing people of what they're going through, it's because he's giving them a preview of what the kingdom is like. He's giving them a foretaste, a taste of what the kingdom is like here on earth. He's establishing his kingdom here on earth. Or when Jesus forgives people of sins, when he tells them, repent, right? Repent of your sins. You know why he does that? Because in the kingdom, there is no sin. Right? The kingdom will be a place where there is no sin. The, the presence and the power of sin will cease to be. And so when he tells people, repent of your sins, when he forgives people of their sin, you know why he's doing that? Because he's giving them a taste of the kingdom here on earth. He's establishing the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven here on earth. One pastor said the following. He said, the gospels show us Jesus preaching the gospel of the kingdom which is about God's beginning to set all things right, the ensuring that God's glory is reflected everywhere on earth, just like it is in heaven. And that's what Jesus began to do 2,000 years ago. He began the process of setting all things right, of bringing the kingdom of heaven here on earth. You see, because Jesus rose again from the grave, 
He is our king. God's kingdom is here. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to him. He's our king. So the question we need to be asking ourselves is, what does this have to do with mission? Right? I thought we started having this conversation because we're trying to think about how do we bring hope to the city that we are living in and to the things that we're seeing? How do we bring hope to the lives that we live and the destruction that we see in our own lives? I thought we were looking at the passage of the Great Commission. You see, the passage that tells us, uh, this passage, what it's telling us this morning is that as Christians, we are called to be missionaries and to make disciples in this world. But what we begin to realize is that King Jesus and the kingdom of God actually has everything to do with mission. It's at the heart of mission. Let me show you how. Listen to Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. Hear this with me. This is Isaiah, a prophet. He says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Our God reigns. You see, Isaiah is telling us this morning what it looks like for us to be missionaries. You see, as missionaries, the gospel that's being communicated to the entire world is the good news that our God reigns. Through Jesus, our God is establishing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. He has made the resurrected Jesus the king of heaven and on earth. And through his kingdom, God is making all things right. And so what's the, what's the point of mission What are Christians trying to do through mission? The point of mission is trying to alert people of the reign of God on earth. Hear that. The point of mission, the reason why Christians do mission, is to try to alert people of the reign of God on earth. Of the fact that he is king right now. Of the fact that he reigns over the entire universe. I heard one pastor say it like this, right? He said, when the U.S. has an embassy set up in some kind of foreign country, the reason why we do that is so that we can represent ourselves and advance the interest of our nation in that place, right? Why do we set up an embassy? Because we want to represent ourselves in that nation. We want to uh, kind of advance our interest in that nation in that place as well, right? And so the ambassadors who live there, they live by the rules of the U.S., And why do they live? They live to further the purposes of the mission of U.S. in that foreign land. That's why they do that. Well, guess what? Christians are no different. Christians are in this world as ambassadors of another kingdom, right? A kingdom that's currently breaking into this world. And so we live by the rules of our kingdom. And we live to advance the mission of our kingdom here on earth. That's why we exist And so how do we do that? We do that in the same way that our king did it. We do it by announcing it and by demonstrating it. In other words, through our lips and through our lives, we declare that our God reigns. You know, sometimes Christians uh, argue with each other or debate with each other or uh, talk heatedly with each other uh, about Uh, Which is more important, right? Is it words or is it deeds? 
right? Is it more important for us to speak the gospel or is it more important for us to demonstrate the gospel? And I feel like it's sort of a, a ridiculous question for us to be asking ourselves. Uh, one scholar put it this way. He said, it would sort of be like us asking, is it more important for me to tell my daughter that I love her or to show my daughter that I love her? And you, you hear the absurdity of the question as soon as you, as you say it, right? Because it's obviously both. For anyone who's a, a parent here, whether your son or your daughter, you know there are times where you will tell your daughter that you love her. You tell it to her often and frequent. You tell it to her in simple ways and complex ways. But nonetheless, you tell her that you love her. You use words to tell her about your love for her. But as well as you show her. You show her you love her as well. Through simple ways and, and complex ways, you show her your love for her regularly, often. You demonstrate your love for her through your actions. It's both. It's not either or. You don't pick and choose which one you're going to do. You do both because they go hand in hand. Well, Christian mission is no different. Through announcement and through demonstration, we get the chance to declare our God reigns. Because you see, unexplained action, hear that, unexplained action is not the mission of God. An undemonstrated announcement is not the full mission of God either. Unexplained action is not the mission of God. We obviously want to build wells all over the world, but we also want to point them to the living water. But undemonstrated announcement is not the full mission of God either. If my mission is limited to me being behind this pulpit, I'm not living on mission either. Mission requires both. It requires our lips and our lives. God uses his church to alert the world of his kingdom through announcement and demonstration. And so we announce it by using words. So we have things like conversations with our family and our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers. We tell anyone and everyone who is willing to listen that our God reigns. We tell them about King Jesus, how he died and resurrected for us. We tell them that because he died and because he resurrected, we can trust him now to bring new life, new life to us and to the city that we belong to because our God reigns here on earth. We tell them that our king is making all things new and that he's the only hope that we have for our city and for our world. And we invite them to come and to belong to this kingdom, right? To come and to submit to this king, to forfeit citizenship of any other kingdom and to join the everlasting kingdom of the son of man. We get to, we don't have to, we get to announce by words, the fact that our God reigns. But we also demonstrate the reign of God through our lives as well. You see, mission isn't just telling people our God reigns. It's showing people that our God reigns. Because when we do, we provide them with a preview of a foretaste of what the kingdom of God looks like. You know, we as Christians, we should be asking ourselves a lot, what does the kingdom of God look like? What does it look like when our God reigns? And as we begin to consider the answers to that question, what we should be doing is saying, listen, if that's what it looks like, I want to show people that kingdom. I once heard it being explained this way, and I thought it was hugely helpful. 
it, it, it's sort of like going to a movie and sitting down for the previews, right? You know, so some of us like watching previews, some of us don't. But the 10, 15 minutes uh, before the movie, we sit down and watch previews. Say you watch this one preview and it's, um, you know, there's some moments where you chuckle, you kind of smile a little bit because it's kind of funny, or, or you see, you know, one or two scenes where it's sort of action-packed, uh, or you, you see another scene where it seems like it has a good plot. What do you do? You sit, you look over to the person that's sitting next to you, your friend or your spouse or whatever it might be, and you say, you want to see that? Right? But say you watch a preview where your stomach is hurting because you're laughing so hard. Right? Or you watch a preview where it has the biggest explosions, the most intense action scenes that you have ever seen. Or you see a preview where the plot is brilliant. It's the most romantic plot that you've ever seen. What do you do? You look over to the person and you say, we have to see that. Right? You say, we have to see that because the preview is so compelling that it moves you to say, I have to see that. I want to see the rest of that. You see, when Christians demonstrate the reign of God on earth, it's like we're providing previews of the most loving, forgiving, serving, generous ruler here in the world. And it should lead people to say, I have to see that. I want more of that. I want more of what that looks like. I want to be a part of that. You see Seven Mile Road? That's why we do things like fight sex trafficking in the city of Mumbai. Because you see, God's place, God's kingdom, is a place where there is no perversion. God's kingdom is a place where women are not objects. They're they're daughters of the king. And so when we fight sex trafficking, we're whispering in Mumbai, our God reigns. We're telling people, our God reigns. This world doesn't belong to you. This world belongs to the one who has been given all authority on heaven and in earth. That's why when you Northeast GCM folks are trying to figure out how are you going to connect with Anne Frank, figuring out how it is that you can serve their needs and provide for Anne Frank Elementary School, do you know why you do that? You do that because in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is filled with servants. The kingdom of God is filled with people who sacrifice everything, their lives and their comfort and their resources for the good of others. And so when you do that, you do that so that you can whisper along the streets of Anne Frank and in Northeast Philadelphia that our God reigns. Do you know why we meet together for things like soul care? Why we get together to fight sin and to to, uh, believe the gospel and to seek holiness? Because like we said before, God's kingdom will be one where there is no sin, any brokenness, where the Holy King himself will dwell among us. And so when we get together and as we consider sin and seek Jesus and fight for holiness, you know what we're doing? We're whispering to one another, our God reigns. And what happens? Little by little, his kingdom God's reign and rule is heard and seen all over the earth. That, my friends, is why Christians do mission. Because we get, we don't have to, we get to declare the greatest hope that we have for our city and for this world. That through our lives and through our lips, we get to tell the entire world 
that our God reigns.